<laughs> Good evening. Can you hear me okay in the back? Great. Uh, I want to uh, congratulate you again for making it through the second day. Sometimes call the first day, as James did, the detox. Uh, sometimes we call it the swamp, and sometimes the second day is even swampier. So, and really we are, as you know and has been said, you, we are swimming against the stream of a, of a huge momentum of conditioning. Uh, you know, the, really the identity of our time, you could say, is the identity of busyness. And so we're actually stopping. As uh, an editorialist named Amy Krauss Rosenthal put it, she says, uh, how have you been? She starts a little dialogue. How have you been? The answer is, busy. How's your week? Good, busy. You name the question, busy's the answer. She says, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but more often than not, busy is, is the simplest knee-jerk response. She says, have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? I've got 10 caves to draw on. Can I, can I meet you by the fire next week? Her contention is it's, the, it's because of the advent of coffee bars and coffee's luscious byproduct, productivity, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. She says, as kids, our answer to every question, what, what did you learn at school today, what, you, what do you do, was nothing. <laughs> she said, like, like youth, she's starting to think the word nothing is being wasted on the young, and we need to reintroduce it into our grown-up vernacular. And that's what we're doing, and it's not so easy. But I wanted to start tonight by just suggesting that we are really up to something. This willingness to go against the stream of our chronic conditioning, still, in the face of that, we still have this amazing capacity to awaken and to experience the joy of awakening. As the Buddha put it, just given the alternatives. He said, I know of no other single thing so conducive to misery as the uncultivated, untrained mind. Went on to say, I know of no other single thing so conducive to well-being than this cultivated and well-trained mind. And put in a slightly different way by, by the ecstatic poet Hafez, he says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. But he goes on to say, and another reminder of this possibility, he says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. And one last expression of this this inclining of our hearts and mind toward awakening and toward the capacity that we have to swim against the stream of the tide of greed and the tide of hatred and the tide of ignorance. Beautiful passage from, from the master Tilopa or Naropa to his, I think it's Tilopa to Naropa, a Tibetan teacher. And this, this is part of a teaching called the 27 Verses on Mind Training. 
I found this just so exquisite that I thought that you would enjoy this. So sensitive an ecology is the interdependence of all that the slightest attention and assistance given to others creates moral elevation for ourselves and humanity, while the slightest indifference or neglect toward others creates moral harm for ourselves and our civilization. The faintest spark of ill will toward other beings can burst forth into a terrible forest fire consuming vast expanses of sympathetic joy. Even the faintest negative reaction or malicious wish opens wide channels through our entire being for life-destroying poisons of negation and life-obscuring shadows of self-cherishing. Cast far away from all precious humanity these lethal doses, these ominous shadows, by cultivating instinctive admiration and love for those who practice the way of selflessness. Adore such bodhisattvas for their irreversible vow to remain intimate with the struggle of living beings as beacons of love and as the light of panoramic vision. Once identified with this luminous way of life, you will experience every moment as soaked in bliss, tasting the delight of compassionate responses to even the most negative actions of other human beings. I've composed this poem of rapturous affection further to strengthen the diamond-sharp conviction of those already faithful to the path of wisdom. There's so much in the Buddha's teaching about the, the reminder that we are trainable, that we are not just the heirs of our past actions, the past collective actions, but if we want to understand our future, we look at what, we, what seeds we're planting right now, that this moment, this retreat, every moment of our life is an open field of creative possibility. And depending on what we plant into it, it either is a kusala, unwholesome, or kusala, wholesome. Uh, planting the seeds, that which leads to happiness, that which leads to, uh, to sorrow and grief. So we know that the, that the Buddha, as James mentioned, the Buddha was called Sukhiya, the happy one. So all this that I'm speaking about, everything we're doing here is in the direction of happiness and joy. The Buddha was not called the great sufferer. He was called Sukhiya. But we throw around these words of joy and happiness, and I love that James translated joy as, uh, as well-being. Uh, but we still use the word happiness, and it's all in that direction. The Dalai Lama, the purpose of life is to be happy. But we sometimes don't really deconstruct or look at what that word means. What do we mean by it? You may find over the course of your practice that happiness doesn't mean being in a good mood all the time, as if, if, as if you haven't noticed. It must be about something uh, slightly more reliable. And it was the Buddha's search uh, 
for a reliable refuge, something that, that could withstand the test of whatever it was that was happening in our lives. Otherwise, if it can be lost, it's not worth chasing after, if it can be lost. That pretty much eliminates as a source of happiness virtually everything in our life. You know, in terms of seeking ultimate happiness in anything that can be lost. I um, once was, had the good fortune of being the attendant for a wonderful meditation master teacher named Anagarika Munindra. There's a beautiful book of his teachings for any of you who want to get the flavor of his kind of joy and um, intelligence. You could ask him a very simple Dharma question and then 30 minutes later he'd still be just, just waxing about uh, the answer. And it was infectious, his love of the Dharma and his, his awakening. So I followed him around and he, he had the... He had all of the, the, what we call the awakening factors of the active factors of, of curiosity and interest and investigation and, um, and mindfulness. He had the pacifying qualities of, of stillness and, and calm and ease and some of the, these, bal- these factors of balance in our mind. But the, at the heart of his active qualities was this feeling of joy. And after following him around, and he saw me, and he saw that I generally had a pretty positive disposition. We had a really good time together. But as he was leaving, he looked me very intently in the eyes, and he said, may you truly be happy. <laughs> and it made me pause for a moment, and, and it, it, this kind of deep insecurity, well, maybe I'm not as happy as I appear. So it, it began a process of really studying what the Buddha meant about happy. And it, in some ways it could be distilled down to basically there being two kinds of happiness. But what, what I'd like to speak about tonight is how he discovered this. Because all of the teachings are really simply an expression of what he realized out of his own experience. And the way that he, that he was able to distill that and share it with others uh, was through sharing it with others. It's not as though he just got this thing and then packaged it in a little perfect teaching. It came through a living transmission, a living mind-to-mind, heart-to-heart interaction. But in that interaction, he was able to just conversationally speak to what he had realized. And so it became, it was, it's a very, ideally, it's not meant to be a kind of imperious teaching that we just fight over, but uh, something that we, that we share in a, in a conversational way and we all study it in our own way, just as he did, that allowed him to be able to distill the teachings into something that we could understand and put to practice. So he, so the overarching um, distillation of what he discovered was that there are basically two kinds of happiness. There is what he called worldly happiness. The word in Pali is lokia. Lokia is worldly. 
Sukha is the word for, for happiness, comfort, relief. So there's lokiya sukha. And worldly happiness is that happiness that we experience when we get what we want or get rid of what we don't want. It's sometimes that describe the happiness of, of sense pleasures. Lokiya sukha is also described as the happiness of bondage because it it depends on satisfying some kind of hunger. And so we're unhappy if we don't have it and happy if we do. And so this keeps us in a state of what the Buddha called bhava, of becoming, of toppling forward, continually toppling forward into a future that never arrives, always waiting, hoping. I think James spoke of it last night as postponing always overlooking the immediate experience for, for the purpose of satisfying a hunger that we hope will happen at some other time. And the Buddha was very clear about the world of, of sense pleasures. He said they're a beautiful, beautiful thing to experience the pleasures of the senses. And, and it doesn't come to us easily to enjoy the world of senses. In fact, when he turned the wheel of the Dharma and shared the teachings, he said one of the proximate causes of being able to enjoy the world of the senses was to have in place in your life, or at least growing in your life, uh, a kind of what he called purity of action. Or the, you could call it the joy of non-harming. That in order for you to be able to be available to sights and sounds and smells and tastes and the beauty of connection, the beauty of solitude. Your mind cannot be in a continuous way dealing with the reverberations of the ways that you may have caused harm through your speech, uh, through your thoughts, and through your actions. That body, speech, and mind, depending on what, what is uh, rolling around in us and externally, causes us to, when we cause harm to ourselves or each other, causes us to have a lot of reverberations, a lot of regret, a lot of guilt, a lot of replaying, a lot of planning our revenge, whatever it might be. And this, this actually creates a kind of disturbance that makes it really hard for us to enjoy the world of the senses. So it's not to knock the world of sense pleasures. But I guess this is a time to really look at and to appreciate that the conditions that we create on the retreat of non-harming, of, of being, to the extent that we can, being human and flawed, impeccable about planting the seeds here of safety and, and non-harming, being ultra-careful with our speech. That's fairly easy because we keep noble silence. We guard our solitude and we guard the solitude of each other. And we, we, we practice uh, not harming any life form. We practice the, the, uh, the relinquishing of our, our smartphones and our alcohol and our drugs. And we, 
We don't uh, engage in any kind of unskillful action with our sexuality. And you begin to sense, you can on the retreat, there's a, a kind of sweetness that comes when we act in a way that's non-harming. And it, if we extend that into our lives, there's a, there's a joy that comes, some, sometimes called the bliss of blamelessness. I don't know if that's been mentioned so far. It's also called the, the, um, the gift that we offer to ourselves and to the world, the gift, especially to the world, the gift of fearlessness, which means we, there's a fragrance about us that we can be trusted, that we are safe. We are a safe refuge for others and they don't have to be afraid of us. And that kind of purity of action, the joy of non-harming, makes it possible for us to really take in the sense pleasures. And we need to be nourished. We, don't, we would not have these eyes and ears and nose and tongue and body and mind if they weren't meant to, um, to actually generate um, gladness in our hearts. So this is not a life-denying practice. This is a life-affirming. But not just the idea of our life, but the real immediacy of our life. It's so easy to miss. What could be more juicy than sitting right here and not looking ahead and not looking back a little bit and really taking in the, the life that's in and around us. So easy to overlook this, or overshoot this for some imagined better moment. So our purity of action allows our mind to be free to take this in. But the Buddha saw something about this world of sense pleasures that he also saw mimicked or turned out to be the same as, uh, as everything else in life. And what really moved him was the, his experience of what he called the, the, three, the four heavenly messengers. So in the, in the more macro way, he saw that, that people, as we've been mentioning in different ways, the definition of birth, leading cause of death. <laughs> That's actually Wiley's dictionary definition of birth. It's not original. And he saw that, um, he saw that if you, the definition of birth is a leading cause of sickness, leading cause of aging, leading cause of... of um, of not getting what you want all the time, not wanting what you get. But most of what he saw was, uh, what really shook him up was sickness, old age, and, and um, death. And it, it made him ask that question, uh, is this going to happen to me? And it really speaks to our tendency toward denial of this and denial of the reality that is just so obvious, like an open secret, that everything that arises has the nature to pass away. In fact, one of the most frequently chanted passages in monasteries and sometime on retreats is the Pali words are anicca vada sankara upadawaya damino upakitu aniruchanti desang upasamo sukho. 
Basically, all conditioned things that have the nature to arise have the the nature to pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings joy, brings sukha, brings happiness. To be in contention with this truth obviously brings its opposite. When we just don't want it to be so. A story from an anonymous story in terms of being in contention with reality. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his trouble farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The, the farmer responded indignantly, then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, my teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. The Buddha could not avoid those first three heavenly messengers. And fortunately, he saw a fourth heavenly messenger. He saw, remember, sickness, old age, death. He saw a corpse, saw someone near in his own age. He was 29, who was ill. He saw an aging person. He saw a corpse. And then he saw a renunciate, someone with a kind of serenity that uh, and a, a simplicity and a peacefulness that was against the, going against the stream of what, what everyone else was preoccupied with. And he was preoccupied up to this point with just what everyone else is. Every, mostly preoccupied with trying to link as many pleasures together as we can and then call it a, a happy day. <laughs> Unfortunately what he began to see that the linking of pleasures together one after another had their pleasure, no doubt about it. And he said, the be- there's a beauty in enjoying the sense pleasures. But he also said in his later teachings, there are three things you need to know about the pleasures of the senses. You need to know their pleasure. So right there it tells you not to deny the pleasure that you can experience. And so many people have described just feeling the intimacy with the environment here or just finding a place of uh, their, where their heart opened. Just any number of things. The food, we had a big rally for the food in one of our meetings. So that so many kinds of pleasure. But he said that should be recognized. But he also, the second thing was to Uh, to experience and understand 
what he called their dangers or defects. That depending on the senses, the desires of the senses, depending on what we call sense pleasures for our sense of happiness leaves us in a chronic state of dissatisfaction because one, the pleasure of one experience arises, it fades away, just like a life. And when it fades away, it leaves in its wake a feeling of loss and very quickly in that void where our last lifetime of seeking experience ended, in that void, our mind is then conditioned to seek another one. And then we seek another and another and another, and then our life becomes all about, all about the obsession with what's next. And then what does that do What does that do to our experience of the present moment? The only moment any of us has ever had. There has only ever been a present. The past we've only experienced as ideas, as memories in the present. Regrets, the joyful memories, the future, that we've only known as worry or fantasy or, or kind of delight in looking forward to things, certainly pleasure associated with it. But all the, when we're, our mind is engaged in that looking ahead and looking forward or looking back in the present moment, what gets obscured is the, is the reality of, of where we're actually sitting right now. And there may be even some of you who are, are even experiencing this talk. I imagine this, ha- I know this has happened to me listening to talk, where in some ways you're listening, but part of you is waiting for it to be over. Waiting to see whether it, it helps you in your life. Often some kind of acquisition or some some little feeling of, come on, get on with it. (laughs) And this kind of tension that often comes with the dependency on sense experience, it puts us in a state of suspended happiness, suspended joy. We're often in a state of waiting, in a state of, as James was saying, in a state of postponing. And it turns the present moment into a, for, for us at different times, in, as this is Eckhart Tolle put it this way, he, it, turned the pres- it turns the present moment into a pass-through. Someplace we're just passing through on our way to the real source of joy. Or it turns the present moment into an obstacle to joy. Or to the extreme, it turns it into the enemy. Now, some of this is very innocent in that there are ways that we had no other means of finding any kind of safety or relief other than distracting ourselves or leaving leaving real time, disassociating, planning, planning, going into fantasy, planning some event that would give us some kind of soothing when we didn't know how to accommodate 
and metabolize the feelings that may have been so intense in the present moment. So it's an understandable part of our conditioning. But there is this, we have a capacity, a possibility of, of unwinding those very deeply conditioned tendencies of mind to topple forward and turn our attention back to, as Derek Walcott, who recently died, may he rest in peace, to the one who has loved you all your life, whom you've ignored for another, who knows you by heart. To reclaim, as Thich Nhat Hanh, to reclaim our heritage. He says, you, who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. Or as a teacher named Nisargadot says, nothing can make you happier than you are fundamentally. All search for happiness elsewhere, joy elsewhere, is misery and leads to more misery. That the only, wor- the only happiness or joy worth that name is the natural happiness of being conscious and letting the qualities that flow from that consciousness um, be, be nurtured. That's why it's so worth it to stop, to wake up. Whenever I say this, wake up, I think of this story that I've been, it just comes into my mind a lot. It, I have to say it gives me a chuckle every time, but maybe it, it'll make you chuckle, maybe it won't. But um, I read this in a, a book by Anthony DeMello, a great spiritual teacher who uh, described seeing on Spanish television a, um, a little vignette where um, a father knocks on his son's door and he says, Jaime, uh, get up. It's time to get up. Uh, get up. It's time to go to school. And Jaime says, I don't want to go to school. Ever hear that? I've really been dealing with that a lot lately at my house. I don't want to go to school. And, and, uh, and his father says, well, um, why don't you want to go to school? He says, well, it's dull. And I hate school. And the kids tease me. And his father said, well, I'll give you three reasons why you have to go to school. It's your duty. You're 45 years old. (laughs) And you're the headmaster. Wake up. (laughs) Wake up. Each of us is the headmaster. And yet we've been, been spinning in this kind of shrinking world, this narrow little world where we're like hungry ghosts with the little mouths and huge stomachs constantly dissatisfied and getting di- our vital energy diminished by being in that state of constant hunger. So lokiya sukha, worldly happiness, undeniably pleasurable but has its defects and its dangers. It, it puts us on a, on a kind of wheel of becoming. And our identity gets very wrapped up in what I want to happen. 
The poet Rumi says, and I take this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but there's some depth in it. He said, failure is the key to the, the divinity within. Your prayer should be, break the legs of what I want to happen. <laughs> Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring, and finally I have no will. Unfortunately, we tend to need to burn ourselves out. But uh, there is an alternative. And that's to begin to make a shift from being just carried along by what we call the wanting mind rather than being carried along by it, to begin to relate to it. Begin to let it, letting, begin to let it become what a Tibetan teacher named Trungpa Rinpoche called the manure of Bodhi. Letting the wanting mind itself be our path by studying what that feels like to be on the hook for the sense pleasures. To see the way that our identity gets wrapped around it and how, how, how insecure and fragile we feel when we're, when we're dependent on things turning out the way we want them to and how it puts our heart and mind in a, into a state of, of tension and suspended happiness. And when we relate to this wanting mind and the, the state that we are often in, I think I can speak for all of us, we're often in a state of, of this uh, trying to get to the next thing. That when you, if you can start to see that, then you can start to have more humor about it. Start to laugh at yourself. To see, you know, it's, on one hand, it's very painful to be caught. But once you start relating to it, and as James was saying last night, the, no, the noticing mind is not, is, not, is not becoming, is not waiting, is not, is not um, postponing. The noticing mind is just noticing. It's free. It's empty. He was saying the awareness of sad is not sad. The awareness of becoming is not becoming. It's noticing. And with, that, with a greater sense of freedom, it start, you start to see the absurdity in postponing, the humor of it. I think this is captured very beautifully in the comedy of Larry Miller uh, as he speaks about aging and the way that our mind is constantly moving on. you have many thoughts about aging? Well, here's what he says. Do you realize the only time in our lives when we like to get old is when we're kids? If you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging, you think in fractions. How old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half. You're four and a half going on five. That's the key. You get into your teens, now they can't hold you back. You jump to the next number or even a few ahead. How old are you? I'm going to be 16. You could be 13, but hey, you're going to be 16. (laughs) And then the greatest day of your life, you become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21. Yes. But then you turn 30. Ooh, what happened there makes you sound like bad milk. He turned. We had to throw him out. 
There's no fun now. You're just a sour dumpling. What's wrong? What changed? You become 21. You turn 30. You're pushing 40. Whoa, put on the brakes. It's all slipping away before you know it. You reach 50 and your dreams are gone. But wait, you make it to 60. (laughs) You didn't think you would. You become 21, turn 30, push 40, reach 50, make it to 60. You built up, you built up so much speed that you hit 70. <laughs> James just had his uh, glorious 70th birthday. He was celebrated for hitting 70. <laughs> After that, <laughs> sorry, James. After that, it's a day by day thing. <laughs> you hit Wednesday. You get into your 80s and every day is a complete cycle. You hit lunch, you turn 4.30, you, you reach bedtime, and it doesn't end there. Into your 90s, you start going backwards. I was just 92. Then a strange thing happens. If you make it over 100, you become a little kid again. I'm 100 and a half. May you all make it to a healthy 100 and a half. So all of this becoming obscures the, that in us which is ageless, deathless, free, already home, already immersed in the very thing that we are searching for. Because when we stop, we don't look back and we don't look ahead. We don't give rise to our idea of ourselves as an age in real time without denying conceptual, conventional age in real time in the immediate present, we don't know how old we are if we don't consult our memory. All we know is we're awake. So the teachings are constantly reminding us to wake up, discover, as I think it was Albert Camus in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer, easily overlooked. There has been so many attempts to try to to um, see if we could remember, uh, come back to a sense of innocence. George Carlin, I can never resist sharing this because he was, he's trying, he saw the way that we're constantly going. So he said that we need to go the other direction. He said, the most unfair thing about life is the way it ends. 
I mean, life is tough. It takes up a lot of your time. What do you get in the end? A death. What's that, a bonus? I think the life cycle's all backwards. You should die first and get it out of the way. That's what we're doing here. Then you live in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch. You go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You do drugs, alcohol, you party. You get ready for high school. You go to grade school. You become a kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little baby. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating in spa-like conditions. (laughs) Central heating, room service on tap. (laughs) And you finish off as an orgasm. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So it's a nice attempt to, to remind us not to to overlook this um, spark out of which all of this mental momentum of becoming uh, goes. And the Dalai Lama speaks about this, this momentum, this dependency on what's next, on sense desires, on becoming. Uh, when he was asked what most surprised him about humanity, he said, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. And then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So needless to say, this worldly happiness, as much pleasure as there is associated with it, it's not exactly a reliable refuge. So the second kind of happiness that the Buddha spoke of and discovered and really the one that we are practicing here. If you are practicing for the first kind, then you'll be very dissatisfied here. Just trying to have more pleasure. It's, we definitely need to have more pleasure to let ourselves experience pleasure. But if that, is your, if that is your main source of, of happiness, you will, be, you will um, you'll be prevented from the, the highest happiness, the happiness of freedom or the happiness of letting go, the happiness of non-clinging. So the... The actual word for the second kind of happiness, the first one called Lokiya Sukha, the second one called Lokutra Sukha. Lokutra means unstuck from the world. A happiness that's beyond the power and influence of whatever's happening. Also described as unconditional happiness. A well-being that does not depend on circumstances. That can sit in the middle of the waves of praise, of blame, of fame, of shame, of pleasure, pain, gain, and loss. I may have repeated a few of those. I'm 
the happiness of freedom. And his, um, his life is a, gives us a, it, perhaps it can point out uh, why we are, exactly why we are doing what we're doing here in terms of, of the insight practice that's part of the awakening joy along with the part of awakening joy is the, the joy of, of non-harming, the joy of, of, uh, of um, morality, of um, wholesome uh, conduct, um, of acting wisely and lovingly and non-harmingly. The, another part of the awakening joy is the joy of letting go. So how did, the, how did this happen? The Buddha didn't just kind of pick this out of the, out of the, um, and it wasn't just a thought that he had. Hmm, let me think about this. If this causes suffering, well, this causes happiness. That all came as he was, it came from the inside. So when he saw the heavenly messengers, he was struck. And the, the enchantment with youth that we tend to be one of those things, one of the sense pleasures that we really cling to, the pleasures of youth. The enchantment with health, we tend to be very much identified and we cling to our health. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't do everything we can to care for ourselves and to, to take care of our bodies and love our bodies and there are temples. But there is a, there is a, a wise attention to our body and there's an unwise attention. The unwise attention is a kind of obsession with beautification, with, with um, just a fixation, trying to actually make our bodies uh, stay in a certain way when their nature is to gracefully age and get ill at some point and die. Again, I'm repeating what's been said already. So the enchantment with youth, the enchantment with health, and when he saw that corpse, the enchantment with life, he just said, uh, he realized, this is going to happen to me. Could no longer stay in denial. And it caused such a, and then seeing that renunciate, it caused such a, um, an existential moment of, a kind of, in some ways, a, a shock and dismay at the futility of trying to find a reliable relief through the body. And a reliable, and by extension, a reliable, a reliable relief in anything else that is subject to change and loss. And it caused that deep question, where, how can I find a reliable refuge? And as many of you probably know the story as well as, as I do, he, he first um, uh, tried to deny his, his senses. You know, he didn't exactly develop dispassion toward the, the senses. He First of all, he developed a kind of aversion to the pleasures of the senses, a kind of life-denying, and he practiced asceticism. And 
uh, denial of food. In fact, it said that he got, became so thin that if he touched his fingers to his, um, to his stomach, he could feel his back ribs or something like that. Some element, of, something like that. Something, and his skin turned green from eating nettles or something. But all that did was make him sick and tired. And his mind weak, unable to, unable to, um, to actually find any kind of freedom. But before he did that, he, in using the example of that renunciate, he went and started practicing meditation. And what was being offered during his lifetime was meditation that have, has had elements of what we're doing here, of gathering the attention to a single point. We use our body, we use the breath. You, you know, l- really, any time you gather your attention and sustain that attention, over time, in the gentle prompting of your attention, we call it aiming and sustaining, or a gentle gathering and sustaining, what began to arise with that, as it probably has for you in different moments, he began to experience a quality of joy and a kind of intense interest. You know, interest follows the energy of our attention if we stay with it. He began to feel the comfort of his attention being much more single-pointed, just here. You notice how when you don't look ahead and you don't look back, what's left? There's a certain stillness, calm, that's so natural, that's never altered even a little bit. Kind of our natural state of calm. But he, in doing this, in orienting again and again to real time, to the, this, to the feeling of the, of the body and mind in the same location, he began to experience an increasing sense of joy. And there was a point, and maybe this point has arisen in moments for you here. It's a little unstable the first few days of a retreat where your mind just doesn't move for a while. It just stays really still. And there's a, a, the mind and body become suffused with a, with a, a feeling of pleasure. And there's no shadow of any of our usual torments. Our mind for that time, it doesn't want anything. It's not pushing anything away. It's not building a whole monument to the, to the part of me that, th- you know, to that story that I tell myself that I suck in some way. Any of you ever do that? All of that gone. the joy of concentration, the joy of a well-cultivated well mind, a mind that is very steady, a taste of what's called ekagata, one-pointed and single-pointed, the point that connects us with everything. A temporary abeyance of all the torments of the mind. And he had the feeling, this is 
this is superior to those little fleeting pleasures that I have been so dependent on. You know, and you know the story, he had access to pleasure unknown in the history of the world, not unlike us, because he was, you know, just has, was very privileged, like, like our Western world, relative to many places in this world. Yet this was somehow a, a, what could be described as a higher happiness. But then something dawned on him. He realized that this was just a, a high-class level of lokiya sukha, worldly happiness. Eventually, that kind of the happiness of a concentrated, well-collected mind was was. Um, even though it lasted longer than most pleasures, eventually it had its own little shelf life and would fade away. And, and if it was, if then it was, if that became the aim, and sometimes it does become the aim of people's practice, you taste something like that on a retreat and we joke about it is that we tend to carry the corpses of that experience to the next retreat and then wait, see when we can get concentrated and all the while, that's just reinforcing a, a kind of tension. So we, just like the William Blake poem, we, with our pleasures, we learn, and even our concentrated heart, or concentrated mind, we kiss the joy as it flies. We, we let it come and we let it go. We don't cling to it. You know, that poem, he who binds to himself a joy, does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it, li- as it flies lives in eternity, sunrise. So he, he let go of that um, dependency on the concentrated heart, concentrated mind. But he was still not free, still hadn't found that refuge. That's when he, he went and tried the ascetic route and left him just dry and tight and contracted, trying to deny life. That's, so he went to the extremes of indulgence, went to the extremes of asceticism. It's that moment that he realized the, the middle way that transcends both of, that, that has some measure of renunciation and simplicity and some, and some necessity of, of taking in the nourishment of the senses. And he remembered a time when he was young and well-fed and at rest, and he said, in order to, to wake up, you need enough food, you need comfort, you need some pleasure. But, uh, so he's, he took some food, started to practice again, and he, that's when he sat down at the Bodhi tree and he said, I'm not getting up until I, until I find what I've been looking for, until I find something reliable. And he used his concentration again. He aroused that, got his mind to a single point, but he, he didn't let the pleasure of it overtake him. That's how, it leads, how it's written in the teachings. Instead, he applied that steadiness, that brightness of mind, and he started paying close attention 
to the flow of experience, exactly like we're doing, welcoming whatever it is that presents itself. So we're really not doing anything different than what the Buddha actually did in his own practice. We're gathering our attention, sustaining it, and then noticing the flow of experience. And an interesting thing happened, a kind of um, natural effect of the continuity of noticing is that the more he noticed, the more we notice, and you may have already noticed this, the more the, you could say the, the dust of memory began to, to clear, the brighter his mind became. And the brighter his mind became, the more clearly he could see what was flowing through our consciousness. The more clearly he could see what was flowing through his consciousness, the more clearly he could see that everything that was arising, no matter what the senses were, it was very simple. That life in its moment-to-moment unfolding is very simple. It is our conceptual mind that complicates it and that, that actually obscures our capacity to really meet it intelligently and effectively, lovingly. And he, said, he saw that then whatever he was seen was just what's seen. Whatever's heard is just heard. Whatever's smelled, just smelled. Whatever's tasted is tasted. Whatever is felt, whatever is cognized, just that. Nothing more. And in seeing that, he saw there's no me, no you, no self at all. There's just what there is. No need in the, in the immediacy of experience to construct an identity about it. In fact, there is no identity to be found in real time other than a, a memory or a thought. And the memories and thoughts came in droves, plans, worries, Doubts, fears, all the hindrances came and assaulted the Buddha. And, but with that brightness of mind, no matter what kind of diminishing thought or inflated thought or whatever, it came and it went. And, his, the, and the more he noticed, the brighter, brighter his mind became. Perhaps you've all heard the teachings and maybe it's been offered in times I wasn't in the room, but later on in the teachings, the Buddha said, luminous, his mind began to shine in its clarity. Kind of intrinsic radiance. That's, that's, more, that's more real than our, than our identity. Than our, what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, more real than our personality view the view about ourselves, This natural mind, this natural radiance. But he said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And it becomes colored usually by all the stuff that enters. And people who don't cultivate their mind, they don't, they don't realize this and they get lost. But then he said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And it's untouched by all these defilements that visit, all these difficulties. This the yogi understands. Therefore, there's cultivation of the mind. Mm. 
And so the more he paid attention and the less caught up, touched by what was visiting, this kind of choiceless love flowed. It may seem on the surface kind of cool, but he felt this kind of love toward everything equally. Everything. And he began to sense a, 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 the effect of not grabbing on to the different experiences in his mind, not pushing things away. He began to experience the joy of letting go, sometimes called the joy of equanimity, the joy of being able to sit in the middle of the flow of experience without getting thrown off your seat. This kind of mountain-like balance, this kind of uh, um, impartial love that can, or sky-like openness that doesn't, that doesn't uh, uh, discriminate against good and bad and hot and cold. And felt this great joy of equanimity. And since I'm running out of time, I'll just give you a little sneak preview of what happened next. (laughs) This was really the moment where there was a taste. This joy of equanimity was like a taste of freedom, a taste of well-being that didn't depend on what was happening in his mind and body. And as he he relaxed into that that non-reactive, natural, you could call it natural mind, in a flash of insight, his mind just kind of withdrew from its usual preoccupations. And And his attention instead of going, even enjoying the, the flow of experience, his attention was drawn to the very nature of the mind itself that was knowing. So it, it was as though the, his attention turned back on itself. And in a flash of insight, he realized that, that the reliable refuge that he had been searching for was none other than the innermost nature of his own mind. Accessible even in a moment of ordinary awareness. That the, that awareness is untouched by whatever visits. And at first, because he, what he essentially experienced was, was so close, was so wondrous in a way, so kind of vast, so easy, that we don't even need to lift out of this moment to discover it. He didn't think anybody would get it. But then he saw with his eye of wisdom that there were those who had just a little dust on their eyes who if pointed back to to this capacity to awaken to awareness to the cultivation of the heart through the the joy of non-harming 
the joy of concentration, the joy of equanimity, the joy of gratitude, the joy of generosity, all the heart qualities that flow from, from this wakefulness, the intelligence, if, those, if that was cultivated, that every, anyone could turn, turn their life into joy. So you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. Let's just be the Buddha knowing the Dharma right now. Thanks for your attention. It is in the beauty of the teachings that, that if one aims for this highest happiness, the happiness of freedom, of letting go, that all the other kinds of pleasures come in its wake. So may all beings experience the highest happiness. May all beings know the joy of letting go. Thank you again for your attention. We have 15 minutes for nighttime walking and freshening your senses and staying present. (laughs) And we'll have a little sit together. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.